following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So the heart of our Christmas series is that wherever Christmas finds you, there's reason for hope and joy. And so for those of us here in South Florida, Christmas finds us in tropical, sunny, warm South Florida until today. And I just want to thank you all for braving the frozen Arctic tundra. I nearly hit a polar bear on my way in today. You braved near blizzard conditions to get here today. And so if you're saying, where did my sunny tropical South Florida go? I want to just remind you that at least Christmas is not finding you in a town called Inuvik, Canada. Now, Inuvik is this little town, one of the most northern towns in all of North America. It's up in Canada. There's about 3,200 residents of this town. But to appreciate how far north it is, I want you to see this map of, uh, of Canada. And you see in the red, you see up there in the left-hand corner, do you guys see that? That's Inuvik. Okay, now let's just kind of get some perspective here. You see that half circle That is the Arctic Circle, okay? That didn't impress you. Okay, let me continue here. All right, let me give you some idea. If you go down just a little bit south and a little bit east, you see Alberta, the the province there, Alberta, you guys tracking with me? And you see Edmonton right there, like with the little star. Now, I might just be a South Floridian, but when I think of Edmonton, I'm convinced there's only three things in Edmonton, snow, hockey, and moose, okay? Nothing else can possibly be in Edmonton. But I want you to get a picture of how much farther north Inuvik is than Edmonton. Let's get some perspective. If you were to drive from Miami to Edmonton, it is actually less miles from Miami to Edmonton than it is from Edmonton to Inuvik. That's how far north it is, okay? It is the average temperature in Inuvik in December is negative 10. That's just the average in December. But what's even more remarkable is that this past week on Tuesday, and this happens every year, but this past week on Tuesday, when the sun set in Inuvik, it is not going to rise again until January. That means it's so close to the North Pole, okay, as the earth is tilted. It's so close to the North Pole that in the winter, when it's facing away from the sun, the sun does not breach the horizon for over a month. So imagine this, okay? You wake up this week, you live in Inuvik, and you wake up and it's dark outside. You're eating breakfast and it's dark outside. You, you take your kids to school. It's dark out. You say, okay, that's not remarkable. That sometimes happens in South Florida. But okay, you go on with the rest of your day. You're in your office. You come out of your office to go to lunch, and it's still dark outside. You drive home from work in the dark. You eat dinner in the dark and go to bed in the dark, and you repeat the same cycle every day for over a month in total darkness. Now, in January, when right at the time of the sunrise that they've been waiting, I mean, imagine how much you'd be anticipating that first time you get to see the sun. 
that sunrise that they wait on. They have an entire, in Inuvik, Canada, they have a week-long sunrise festival. And they gather around to watch. It's around noon that the sun rises. It's above the horizon for less than 30 minutes and then sets again. So this is like impossible for us that live in the sunshine state to understand But the sunrise, imagine this, the sunrise and the sunset are so close together in time that they blend into one event. They they celebrate the the sunrise festival by eating caribou, they eat arctic fish, they do ice sculptures and make igloos and all kinds of things. It's a whole festival because for over a month they've been yearning and waiting for a sunrise to happen. Now, I want you to think about that metaphor because the Bible uses a similar metaphor. And it talks about sometimes we can go through seasons that are challenging and difficult. And the Bible uses this metaphor. Sometimes we can go through a season of darkness and we're just yearning for a sunrise. They say, well, what do you mean by a season of darkness? It can be anything. It can be a difficult person that you have to deal with. It can be a difficult circumstance in your life. It can be some kind of frustration. Maybe it's been lasting for a few weeks. It could be months. It could be years. But maybe where Christmas is finding you this year is you just feel like it's one of those dark seasons and you're yearning for the sun to rise. I want to read to you a passage that addresses that today. It's in Luke chapter 1. Through this series, we're looking at various songs. There are four songs in the nativity story in the book of Luke in chapter 1 and 2. There are four songs. Last week, we looked at the song of Mary. We talked about that one. And this week, we're talking about the song of a guy named Zechariah, who's actually a pivotal figure in the original Christmas story. Now, you might think of the original Christmas story and you think of the characters. You've got Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and shepherds and angels and wise men and then an innkeeper and you have the usual suspects. But Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are key figures in this story. Now, in the nativity story. Now, here's a little bit about these two. They're advanced in age when this story takes place. We don't know exactly how old they are, but they're advanced in age. And Zechariah is a priest. And they're actually relatives of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We don't know. Traditionally, they're thought to be cousins. We don't exactly know how they're related. Maybe it's an aunt or a great aunt. We don't know the actual relationship, but they're quite a bit older than Mary. But they're relatives. And their, their stories intersect because of this. There's this one, t- there's a season when Zechariah is called to go to Jerusalem and it's his turn and, and his group of priests that he's a part of to serve in the temple. And he actually gets selected one day to go into the temple and to burn incense inside the temple, which had to have been a pretty intimidating job. There are laws in the Old Testament that said if you don't handle things just right, you could die. You're in the presence of God in the temple and Zechariah is in the temple burning incense that day. And when he walks in, I mean, if this wasn't intimidating enough, when he walks in right by the altar where they burn the incense, he finds an angel standing there. We learn that it's the angel Gabriel, the same angel that appears to Mary. Gabriel is standing there and he has a message for him. Now, before I tell you what Gabriel said, I've got to rewind a little bit because this guy, Zechariah, is a priest and he would have known some of the ancient prophecies that, that Gabriel's about to reference. One of them is this, 
that before the Messiah actually arrives on the scene, the long-awaited promised Christ, the Messiah, before the Messiah arrives on the scene, there will be a prophet that ra- that's raised up right before the Messiah, and his role is to prepare the way for the Messiah. In other words, stir up the people's hearts so that they're spiritually ready to receive the Messiah. They've been waiting, not just for the Messiah, but they know there will be like a front runner right before the Messiah arrives. Okay, back to the temple with Zechariah. He walks in. This had to be intimidating. He's probably only done this a couple times in his life, if at all. He walks in to burn incense. There's an angel there. And the angel says to Zechariah, he says, do not be afraid. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to give birth to a son. You shall name him John, and he will prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, John hears this, and actually the angel actually says, God has finally answered your long prayers and will give you a son. Now, you're Zechariah, what's running through your head? His first words are these. He says, how could this possibly be? We're advanced in age. We've not been able to have children. How is it possible that we will have a son? You've got to give me some kind of sign to prove that this is true. Okay, time out. There's an angel standing right here speaking this to you, but that's not enough of a sign, okay? Gabriel has some pretty strong words for him. Let me translate. He's like, are, are you serious? Like, I'm an angel. He says, I'm Gabriel. I, I stand in front of God and I'm delivering this message to you. So are you serious? And then he says this. He says, because you did not believe my message... You will not be able to speak again until this all comes to pass. Okay, it would be tough enough to go through those nine, ten months not being able to speak. But imagine one of the craziest occurrences, not just of your life, but in history just happened to you. No one else is around to see it and you can't tell anyone about it. That would be torture. Okay, he's not able to speak, but he promises that his wife will have a son and that he's to name him John. Okay, now in all this time, Zechariah is not able to speak. He somehow communicates some of this to Elizabeth. Can you imagine how hard it would be to communicate that to Elizabeth? He can't like text her, okay? He can't just get a scrap piece of paper and write it down. He's got to use sign language. So how does he communicate using kind of like, primitive sign language to Elizabeth that she's going to give birth. I mean, what does he do? Okay, that, that's not going to go well with Elizabeth, all right? How does he do this? He's got to communicate somehow, and somehow he does this a little bit. And over that time period, Mary, their relative, shows up. If you remember, we talked about this a little bit last week. Mary shows up, and she says to them, she communicates there's an angel that appeared to me. He said his name was Gabriel, and he said that I would have a son. And she says, even though I'm a virgin... And she communicates this to Zechariah and Elizabeth. What must have been going on? I mean, Zechariah must be like frantically giving silence. It's the same angel that appeared to me. And, and he said that I'm going to have this son who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. I mean, what hand motions is he trying to do? Well, here's how the story plays out. The moment comes for Elizabeth to give birth to her son. And she gives birth and, they, and her, the friends and relatives say, what are you going to name him? And she says, we will call him John. 
And the relatives say, wait a minute, that's not a family name. Call him Zechariah after his father. This is a culture that really strongly did a lot of family names. Name him Zechariah after his, his father. And, and they look to Zechariah and he asks for a tablet and he writes this down. And this is very interesting. He says, his name is John. See what he's saying? God already named him John. That is his name. And this child will grow up to be John the Baptist who prepares the way for Jesus. Now, what you see, what we're going to read next is the first recorded words of Zechariah. I want you to imagine you've had all these months in silence. And very similar to what happened with Mary. Remember, we read Mary's words when she arrives at Elizabeth. She had all this long journey kind of all alone in silence and we see what the Holy Spirit's doing in her and the words that come out after that time, that season of meditation is, it's really powerful and a similar dynamic is happening here. Zechariah has had all these months in silence contemplating, the Holy Spirit working on him and his first recorded words are so profound They're so poetic, they're so beautiful, they're known as a song, and they've been celebrated as one of the most beautiful songs in in history. Here's what it says. I want to read this to you. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now I want you to look at some of the wording here because it's significant. We're going to pause right there, just the beginning of the song. The first word of this song is the word blessed. In Latin, that word is benedictus. And so this song, the whole song, has been known throughout Christian history as benedictus, this word blessed. Very similar to what we talked about last week with the very first word of Mary's song being the Magnificat. And it's been known as the Magnificat ever since. His first words are, blessed be God. He's praising God, saying worthy of praise is God. And he says, because says, he has visited his people to redeem them. He's shown up. In other words, he's arrived. He's shown up. He's on the scene. He's arrived to, and then he says, to redeem his people. Now, this is literally the imagery of this word redeem is this idea of someone who's letting the captives free. Like there's prisoners that someone has come in, set them free, let them out of their prison, let them out of their cells, their dungeon, has set them free. And then he uses this metaphor. He says, he has raised up a horn of salvation. Now this is not, this imagery of horn is not an uncommon image in the Old Testament. And it's the image not of like a musical instrument as much as the actual horns of an animal. Now these horns, they're the symbol of power. And this is actually true even, we can appreciate this in modern day. I want you to think of the professional sports teams that have a horned animal as their mascot. So just think about the the football team, the Los Angeles Rams. Can you picture their helmets? What's on their helmets? It looks like this. It's got the actual horns. And actually for decades, they even back to the leather helmet days, they had these horns painted 
on to their helmets because the horn of the entire ram, the horn is the symbol of power. Okay, what, what about the, the Buffalo Bills helmet? Check this out. This is the lo- logo, same logo they've had since the 70s because they're so lame. And here's what it says. What you see right there, you can see their, their eyes. Okay, you can see the, the buffalo's eyes. And then the white horn, it's from the horn that the streak comes on the sides of their head. Okay, it's actually from the horn. Why? Because the horn is a symbol of power. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, there's one who has visited his people. He's redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Okay. When we read that in English, it's like a bunch of like churchy words kind of just jammed in there in one sentence, okay? But if you're to read this as an original recipient in the original ancient Greek, this is war language. This is really powerful language. He's essentially saying there is a mighty powerful warrior who's arrived on the scene and all the prisoners are about to go free because he's drawn his sword and he's about to go to work. That's what this is saying. Powerful imagery, okay? Now think about this. The last words Zechariah spoke before he couldn't speak anymore was saying, how in the world am I going to have a son? It was about his child. Nine, ten months later, maybe a little longer, we don't know the exact time, time frame. Several months later, the first words out of his mouth are not about his son, are they? Something has dawned on him after he can no longer speak in the quietness of his mind. He's realized, wait a minute. The most incredible thing that the angel said to me is not that we are going to have a son, a miraculous pregnancy. That's actually not the most incredible thing. He said that our son, Elizabeth and me, are going to have a son, and that son is the promised prophet that's preparing the way for the Messiah. So wait a minute. If my son's going to be that prophet, that means the Messiah is on the scene. He says, that's the most incredible thing. And it didn't hit him. The first thing all he could think about is we've been praying for a child and now you're going to give us a child. That's all he could think about. But over the course of those months, he realized something far more incredible. It's that the Messiah is here. You almost wonder he's walking out of the temple trying to figure out and adjust the fact that he can't speak and then he's trying to share with people and trying to share with Elizabeth that she's going to have a son and they're trying to go through all of those dynamics. But at some point, I wonder when it started to shift. I wonder if as he was traveling back from Jerusalem, back to his, his home village, and I wonder if he, he passed by maybe a battalion of Roman soldiers. Or saw the, the, a Roman ruler or governor entering back into Jerusalem. Or saw Roman debauchery in what was supposed to be the holy city. Or, or I wonder if he saw was stopped by a tax collector collecting money from his, his countrymen to send to Rome. And he realized, man, we are, such, we are a captive def- captured, defeated people. And I wonder if that's when he realized, wait a minute, something far bigger than what's happening in our family is here. The Messiah, a mighty warrior here to deliver their people and set us free. That's what's so incredible. That's what the beginning of his song is about. Listen to what he says. Let's keep going. This is verse 70. Look what he says. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy 
promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our fathers Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Do you hear what he was talking about there? He says, the Christ, the Messiah, is here, and it's the one we've been promised for so long. He says, all the way back to Abraham, the father of our entire nation, thousands of years ago, he says, Abraham was promised that our enemies would be defeated. I don't want you to turn there, but I just want you to hear what God promised Abraham. Listen, this is all the way back in Genesis 22. This is what he said to Abraham, God to Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And watch this. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. He's saying, your offspring, this nation that I'm bringing out of you, Abraham, they will possess, they will capture the gate of your enemies. They will breach their cities, in other words, and gain control of them. Now, if you're living at the time of Zechariah and you go to synagogue and you're reading this verse from, from the Torah, like, and you look around and there's Roman centurions walking around outside in your village, like, how do you feel? You're saying they've Captured our gates. How, what do you do with this promise if you're living in the time of Zechariah? That's not the only prophecy all through the Old Testament. Let me, let me show you another one. This is something David himself prophesied in a psalm. He says this, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, listen, until I make your enemies your footstool. How do you sing that? If you're at Zechariah's time. He says, we're their footstool. I just paid taxes to a Roman tax collector and it's going to be sent back to Caesar. Like, how do you sing that? And Zechariah is singing this song. He's saying, we have been yearning and waiting for this deliverer who will rise up, this warrior who will save us. Remember their history? The stories they taught their kids, their heroes? They have a long history of God raising up a mighty warrior from among them to deliver them. Guys like Joshua. And God works, like takes down the walls of Jericho and they don't even touch it. They're just marching around it. He raises up guys like Gideon. Gideon and 300 men cause an entire army of thousands and thousands to take flight. A guy like Samson, he took, takes out like a whole unit of soldiers basically with his bare hands. David, the giant slayer, God has put in all of their, their history, all of these mighty warriors to rise up. How many years and generations have they been, they've been waiting? Where is this warrior that is going to rise up to save our people? And Zechariah is saying, that mighty horn of salvation is here. He's setting the prisoners free. What we've been yearning for for all these years, what the prophets said, he is now going to be on the scene. That's the most amazing thing. Now, I want you to see how he shifts here. Look at the end of this song. He's going to shift now to talk about his child. Listen to what it says. This is about John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Now watch what he says here. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a powerful metaphor. He simply says, my son John, he's probably, maybe he's even holding his infant who will be John the Baptist. He says, you are going to prepare the way for this Messiah who is going to bring that long yearned for sunrise. We've been sitting in darkness, wondering when the sun will finally breach that horizon and bring its warming rays down on us. But the sunrise is now here. Notice he uses the word visiting. He used it at the beginning of the song and at the end. He said, a redeemer, someone has visited us who's a redeemer to, to save us from our captivity. And then he says at the end, same word, sunrise has visited us. This mighty warrior who will deliver this people, this sunrise, it's the same person. It's this Christ. It's this Messiah. There's a hero, warrior. Who is this warrior? Well, what is he talking about? I remember when I was a kid, my, one of my favorite heroes to watch was Zorro. Anyone watch like the old black and white Zorros even? Okay, I, would, I loved watching Zorro, even the black and white ones. And, um, and I, I love it because he would single-handedly like save his people. In fact, there was a movie that came out a couple decades ago now and in the very beginning of the movie, Anthony Hopkins plays Zorro. And at this opening scene is just quintessential Zorro, okay? And there's this, there's this group of the, the townspeople, they're in this square and they're being oppressed by tyranny and they're there basically rioting because they're being so oppressed. And they're surrounded by the soldiers of the government of that area and there's the governor up there and he's picked out of randomly from the crowd for no reason, four innocent people that he's going to place before the firing squad. And when he's asked why, he says, I don't know, I just picked four of them to make a point. He's trying to make a point that they are being ruled by an iron fist and they should fear him. And this whole crowd is in an uproar and they're, they're jeering and, and chant, chanting and they're shouting, but there's nothing they can do. They have no weapons and they're surrounded by all of these soldiers with these muskets. And so there's two boys that are watching up, up from on a balcony and they had seen Zorro sneak in. And they're saying, where is Zorro? Like, why isn't he showing up? And the men with the muskets walk in front and take aim at the four men who are tied to the post. They're like, when is Zorro? And of course, at the last minute, Zorro steps out and he pulls out his sword. He has no need for a musket and he makes quick work of all the soldiers and, he's, and he conquers all of them and frees the, the, the people. Of course, Zorro is unstoppable. He cannot be beaten. But one of the most powerful parts of the scene is to watch the crowd while Zorro is going to work. Because there's nothing, they can't help. There's nothing that they can do. They have no weapons. They're just cheering and they're jumping up and down. They're tossing their hats into the air. They're just cheering as their, their, their hero, Zorro, is single-handedly accomplishing for them their salvation. He is single-handedly setting them free from tyranny. See, Zechariah is saying there's a hero that's arrived for us. 
And who is this hero? He says, he's the horn of salvation. Now that exact phrasing is echoing an Old, pa- Old Testament passage. I want to read this to you out of Psalm 18.2. Look what it says because it tells us who the horn of salvation is. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and, and what? The horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Who does he say is the horn of salvation? It's God. The Lord himself. Remember, Mary shows up and Zechariah in his silence is contemplating all these things and Mary shows up and says, I'm a virgin but I have a child growing in my womb and this priest, Zechariah, had to know and go back to Isaiah 7.14 which is a prophecy that says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, the word Emmanuel means, God with us. Do you realize who has arrived? Zechariah is putting this together. It's not just a great human. It's not just a human hero that God is just especially equipping with talents and skills of warfare. That's not who this is. The one who's shown up is God himself this time. He's saying, I am coming to rescue you this time. It's God who's been born of a woman. He's he's entered into her womb in the form of a baby, God in the flesh. He's the one who's there. This time he's saying, I'm drawing the sword. I will deliver you. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will set you free I am the one who am here to take care of it. The sunrise is God himself arriving on the scene to deliver his people. Unbelievable song. Unbelievable. The season of darkness is over. The sun has risen. You know, what's interesting in Inuvik, Canada, is in the winter they have an entire month of darkness. But as you know, there's, there's something close to that in the summer, but it's inverted, right? They have days that are totally sunny. They're the times when the, the North Pole is now pointing in the direction of the sun, they're so far north that they go through whole days in the summer where the sun is still over the horizon. It's sunny at midnight. Here's the dynamic that's happening in this song. There's a sunrise, but it's a perpetual sunrise forever through the generations. Because Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the horn of salvation, God in the flesh, remember what he said to his followers? He said, and I will be with you always. So he is still here with you. There's the sun rose over your life. Now that is true for you and even the enemies that are in your life. You say, well, what do you mean by enemies? I, I don't know if I have enemies. Everyone, we, all of us, we have enemies in our life. It's that friend who betrayed you. It's that person in your life that brought great hurt into your life. Maybe it's that relationship you had where they, they broke your heart. 
Maybe it's that family member that you're going to have to see over the holiday season that's just a constant source of pain for you. Maybe it's that ex-spouse where you've got to go through the dance of, of getting the kids back and forth over the holiday season. Maybe it's that coworker that's always trying to torpedo your career and your life. We all have enemies. But do you hear what Zechariah said? He says, you've delivered us from the hand of those who hate us and you're going to instruct us how to walk in the way of peace. Christian, do you realize who is on the scene? God himself. Do you realize who's drawn his sword saying, I will fight for you? Child of God, do you realize who is on your side? Church, can, can you remember that verse that says, if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Who could stand against you? you? You already have guaranteed victory. It's God who's drawn the sword and saying, I got this. The problem is we, we forget who's standing with us. We forget our deliverer. We, we don't rest in the fact of who is here to set us free. And so what we so often do is we don't know how to handle our enemies and we just handle the enemies just like anyone else who doesn't have a deliverer like God standing by their side. Remember, Jesus told his followers to do crazy things towards, his, towards our enemies. He said, bless those who curse you. He, said, he says, if you've been forgiven so much by God, there's no one you can't forgive. He says, those who persecute you, pray for them. He says, your enemies, show love to them. Like actions of love. He says, everyone loves those who love themselves like everybody does. That's not unique. He says, but if you're following me, you show love to your enemies. That is insane. How does any, that's one of the insane things Jesus asked us to do. Why would we possibly do that? How could we possibly do that? Because we know who has arrived on the scene, our Redeemer, our Deliverer, Emmanuel, God with us, drawn sword, saying, I got this. And when we forget that, we do things like the world does, things like revenge. Revenge, it's, it's that person, oh, you're going to gossip about me at work? Well, see what I, I'm going to slander you at work. You're going to post that nasty thing on social media? Well, watch what I post on social media. You're going to hurt my career like that? Well, look how I'm going to hurt your career. You're going to be cold and rude and distant? Well, watch how cold and rude and distant I am. And what we know about revenge is all it does is just escalate things, right? It doesn't bring that satisfaction we think it's going to bring in the, in the moment. It just brings more hurt. But your deliverer is standing with you saying, vengeance is mine. It's in my hands. Wouldn't you rather it be in my hands? then leave it in my hands and you show love. See, we forget to rest with who is standing with us, who's arrived on the scene. And so we, we operate out of fear. Well, if I don't stand up and do something, then, then who is going to do something? I, I've got to stay. If I don't do something for myself, then I'm, I'm left completely vulnerable. Well, there's a story right before Moses uh, they cross the Red Sea and the Red Sea parts for all the people of Israel to walk across. And all there is is just a sea at their back and the armies of Pharaoh charging down on them. And Moses turns to his people before they have any idea that the sea is about to part for them to walk through on dry land. Before they have any idea and he says this, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. 
the warrior of the universe, Jesus, who said, I am with you, has drawn his sword and saying, I got this. It's in my hands. What do you have to fear? We operate out of revenge or fear or insecurity. You say, do you realize what they've done to me? Do you realize what they've said, how, how they've made me feel, how belittled I feel? How, how can I stand and let them treat me like that? And he says, do you realize who you are, though? He says, you, you are called sons and daughters of God. He loves you so much, he, he suffered on a cross to die for you. Do you realize how loved you are? If you have that... If you know that, that his, you can't even comprehend the, the height and length and depth and breadth of his love. That his love is, is higher than the, than the heavens are above the earth. So great is his love for you. If you can just rest in that, what can this world say to you? How could you be insecure or intimidated? Maybe you say, yeah, but you don't realize I, I, this dark season. I feel like I'm still in the hands of those who hate me. No, you're not. You are not in the hands of your enemy. Your enemy is playing into his hands. What they mean for evil, God will turn around for good. He's standing beside you, Christian, before you and behind you. He is protecting you. What do you have to fear? He delivers the defeated. The sun has risen on your life and it's shining down on you. He will work all things together for good. So what you can do in light of the arrival of your defender and deliverer and redeemer is boldly, recklessly love your enemy. Forgive your enemy. Pray for your enemy. Bless your enemy this year because you've already been delivered from their hands. And do you realize that your enemies, that's not even the most significant thing that he's delivered you from. They're not even the main captor that he's freed you from. Just uh, yesterday, my wife Rebecca and I, we took our daughter to um, a Christmas pageant. There's a great Christmas pageant with uh, one of our partner churches that we love, uh, First Baptist Fort Lauderdale, we love them, and they have this awesome Christmas pageant, and uh, we took our, our daughter there, she's four, Scarlett, we took her to see this pageant, and part of the reason is because um, my sister and my brother-in-law and my two nephews are in the pageant, so we wanted Scarlett to see this, and um, my brother-in-law, Adam, actually plays the part of Jesus, and so we had to have all these conversations with Scarlett of, with Scarlett, hey, you're going to see Jesus but it's, it's Uncle Adam pretending to be Jesus, okay? And he's, he's not really Jesus, okay? He's just pretending to be Jesus, and they're not actually hurting him, okay? They're pretending to hurt him, but he just wants people to know about, Uncle Adam just wants people to know about Jesus, so they're just showing what it must have looked like and, and pretending. And so we're kind of preparing her for all this, and so we, we get to this, the part where they're depicting the life of Jesus, and they start with his birth before they get to his ministry and crucifixion and resurrection, and it's just his birth. And so coming riding in on a donkey is Mary, and you know she's, you can see that she's pregnant, and she comes riding in, and we're like, look, there's, there's Mary. You know, she's on her way into Bethlehem to give birth to Jesus, and I, I looked at Scarlett, and, and she's sitting on Rebecca's lap, and her, her eyebrows kind of furrowed for a second, and she leaned over to me, and she says, is Uncle Adam in her belly? 
Yes, yes, he is. That's how good the pageant is. That's, I don't, it's really, really good, okay? Is Uncle Adam in her belly, okay? And I just could barely contain, I was laughing for like five minutes, and I just, man, so precious just trying to put those things together. I'll probably never forget that comment from her of just trying to put it together. And, and, and if, genuinely, if I had said, yes, he is in her belly, like, she would have believed it. You know, she would have just gone with it. And I, I was just, it was hysterical, that, that comment. And, and then I realized later, you know what actually happened with the real Mary is so unbelievable. It's so much more incredible than the idea of Uncle Adam being in this woman's belly. It's so much more incredible. It's the creator of the universe who's holding the whole universe in his hand, making planets spin and orbit and stars continue to shine and holding cells and molecules together. The one who breathes planets from his mouth and holds galaxies together. That God of the universe, the creator of all, has confined himself into the form of a baby in the womb of this woman. That is far more amazing than what my four-year-old daughter is wrestling with. And I was reminded, it truly takes the faith of a child. She has greater faith sometimes than I do to wrap our minds around what actually happened. Church, do you realize who was on the scene? Emmanuel, God himself, drawing the sword, saying, I'm here to deliver my people and I will always walk with you. There is no enemy that can stand in my way. He's not only defeated your enemies far more than your enemies Christian. Do you know what he's defeated? He's defeated your sin itself, the very thing separating you from God. He took the cross to pay for your sins. No sin can keep you chained down anymore. You walk in grace in freedom, in victory. He defeated your sin. And more than that, he defeated death itself. So that moment that you close your eyes for the last time, you will wake up in your true life, your true home, heaven, purchased by your warrior, your deliverer, Jesus himself. Do you realize, Christian, no enemy can stand against you? Do you realize that there is no sin that continue to cling to you and death itself does not even lay claim to you because of your Christ, your Messiah, Jesus who is the Emmanuel, God on the scene. He's visited us. He has visited you. And he walks with you saying, I am here. You have already been delivered. So walk in crazy, insane, uncommon love towards your enemies that can only be explained by your deliverance, by your deliverer, your redeemer. You might be sitting here saying, you say that we're delivered from death, and honestly, I hope that's true. You say that we're delivered from sin. I, I just feel so far from God still in my sin. I know that I'm messing up. I know I'm not perfect. I'm trying to be good enough, but I, I, I don't know. You can't be good enough. The only thing that can get you to heaven is believing in Jesus. He paid for your sins. Washed them, washed you clean. Paid on, for your sins on the cross. Rose again from the dead so that you can know for certain that you'll spend eternity in heaven. Certainty because of Jesus. And that's, that is the Christmas gift. 
being offered to you. Just receive that today. You can receive it right now. You can say, yes, I believe that by Jesus' death and resurrection, I will spend eternity in heaven. And you can walk out of here knowing for sure you've been rescued. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? And just in just the quietness of this moment, just take a moment between you and God. And if you want to receive that gift and just put your faith in Jesus, then you can just simply pray these words right there silently in your heart between you and God. Just make these words your words. Say, God, I I know I could never be good enough. But thank you that you sent Jesus, my deliverer. Thank you that he paid for my sin on the cross. Thank you that he secured heaven for me by his work, not mine. I give you my life. I'll follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.